We are going to be in Psalm 130. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and open it up. Psalm 130. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get uh, one dropped off to you. Psalm 130, right about the middle of your Bible, you'll find the book of Psalms. And uh, they are in order of number, so you don't need me to count up to 130 for you. Uh, House Bibles, you'll be on page 518. Page 518. This is a psalm that historically has been known as a Pauline psalm. And what that means is that the same guy who wrote the book of Galatians, Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, <clears throat> the structure and the things that Paul talked about in Galatians, that we are saved by grace alone, that by our own merit we can't earn God's love, all that part of Paul's messaging that was so constant in his New Testament writings, all that we just studied through the book of Galatians, we find that kind of baked into this particular psalm as well. Of all the Psalms, uh, Martin Luther used to say this was the most Pauline in its nature. And so I thought this would be a good one for us to follow up as we finish the book of Galatians last week. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dig in. Jesus, we praise you this morning. God, we thank you that you are good and you are God and you know us. We thank you that you love us. We thank you for Christ and his work on the cross. And we pray right now as we dig into the word that we would be a people who are changed and transformed by the word of God that the spirit that lives inside of us for those who have accepted Christ would do its work of transforming our heart, of illuminating areas of our heart where we are not yet who you've called us to be and we are still in the process of transformation and then getting us there. God, would you accomplish that work today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Habits are a powerful thing. Habits, every one of us have them. Habits define a lot of the secondary processes in your life, ways that you go about living your life, the things you do. A habit is something that you have done so many times in your life that it basically just happens second nature for you. You don't even have to think about it anymore. Right? You, just, you just go about it. Because you've done this on repeat so many times, it's just kind of moved to background information in your mind, and you do it without thinking about it. We have tons of habits in our lives. I, I, uh, I was talking, I don't know, was I talking to a dentist? Where I got this little tidbit from? Maybe I was talking to a dentist. The way we brush our teeth, right? The way we brush our teeth is literally, I've been told, that we will brush to a stroke the exact same way every time. For the same amount of time, we'll turn the toothbrush the other way after the same amount of strokes every single time. We'll go, and if, now that you're thinking about it, you'll go back to brush your teeth and you'll try to do it differently and you'll see it feels a little strange, that we're creatures of habit and we form these habits over time. Tying our shoes, same thing. You put your, for me, I put my left shoe on first. I tie it a certain way. It's just a process. I do it without even thinking about it. It's things you've done so many times. Do this one with me, right? Cross your fingers like you're praying. Cross your fingers. Did you know just about every one of you have done that the exact same way since you were a kid and you probably have the same thumb on top that you always put on the top. Look at the person next to you. See if it's the same thumb, right? Now switch it. Switch it. Put the other thumb on top. Doesn't that feel weird? <laughs> it's like not, it's not, not right, right? Why is that? Because you formed a habit. You formed this thing in you that you've done so many times that now you don't even think about it. Right thumb goes on top when I cross my hands, and I've just lost everybody, right? You know, there's no more following the sermon at this point. Some habits are good. Some habits are good. Some habits are bad. A habit of... Grabbing a couple cookies before you go to bed at night. That's not a good habit. You want to break that one. Habits are hard to form because they take time and repetition, and yet they're, they're really hard to break. Those who have gone through addictions and things like that know habits are really, really hard to break. 
Today is the day before New Year's Eve, and New Year's Eve is usually a great time to begin talking about habits. It's right about this time when a lot of you will be going out and buying your new calendar for the year. Uh, You'll be getting your new journal, blank journal, ready to write in it. You'll be making New Year's resolutions. For some of you that are really into journaling, you'll be getting your new colorful markers that you're going to write in your new journal with. I know that's some of you out there. You're prepared to make some new habits in the new year. But you know, there's a couple habits that are so ingrained in the people of God throughout the book of the Bible that I'm not certain if for many followers of Christ today, we've actually taken the time to learn how to form them and how to actually create those habits and structures in our life. There's a few habits that Jesus spoke about often throughout the New Testament. Just said these are, these are vital to the Christian faith. You've got to learn how to practice these things. But some of us have never actually learned how to practice them. It's like a kid learning to tie a shoe. My kids are learning to tie their shoes right now. And it, when they learn to tie their shoe, it's hard, right? You've got to make the bunny ears and you cross it over and they screw it up and it's unnatural for quite a while. But you keep at it. You keep working until finally one day you're you're just kind of tying your shoe without thinking about it and you're headed out the door. It's second nature. There are spiritual habits of the heart that as followers of Christ, we need to take the time to put in the hard work of learning to tie our shoe where it feels unnatural, feels awkward, feels clunky, but eventually something beautiful gets formed in you where these become second nature to you. You do them without even thinking about them. These habits have been so vital for those in the who are followers of God throughout the centuries, for people in the Bible as well as for the church at large. And those who learn these habits, you will find have a profound intimacy with God. You will find their spiritual life is something that oftentimes those who never learn to form these habits will look at and say, how'd they get there and how do I get that? And it's because they've learned these habits. These are not the only habits of the heart. There's plenty more, but these are three of the most foundational ones. And I think they're central to the psalm that we're going to study today, Psalm 130. I've made it as easy as I can for you. If you're going to make a New Year's resolution this year, I am imploring you as your pastor to think about mastering, beginning to put in place these habits. I've made it as easy as I can for you. I've got three W's. It's a good sermon, all right? Three W's. Ready? The habits are a process. Weeping, waiting, and worshiping. Weeping, waiting, and worshiping. If you can begin to form the habit of that trajectory, of that process in your life, even though it's clunky and awkward at first, that will form spiritual fruit in you. Now, we're in Psalm 130 today. This is what's called a psalm of ascent. Psalm of ascent, A-S-C-E-N-T, ascent. It's a psalm of ascent because psalms, I think it's 120 through about 135, were songs that were sung by the Jewish people in the Old Testament on pilgrimages that they used to make to Jerusalem. Three times a year, a faithful Jewish man and woman with their family would make a trip to go worship God in the Old, in the Old Testament. They'd worship God at Jerusalem. And as they went, they'd form these big caravans of people that were all going to Jerusalem together. And what they would do is the leader of the caravan would open up the Psalms and he would lead the whole congregation in singing these together. You can just imagine that scene, can't you? All of God's people singing in unison. We just did that here in this room. Singing together truths about God. And as they went up year after year, three times a year, they'd sing these truths about God. And what it would do is it would serve as a reflection point for them. They'd sing these truths within their community. They'd go to worship at the temple. And then that would allow them to reflect and reset and reprioritize things in their life to make sure God was the anchor that they were driving their life towards. This is a psalm of ascent. All right, what was the first one? 
Weeping. I got one over here. All right, when I ask the second one, I want the whole congregation to get it, right? Thank you. Right over here. Appreciate that. Weeping. Let's read this together. Verses 1 through 4. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Let me say that again. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. The psalmist begins by expressing this deep agony of his soul. It's this deep and profound, from, from the core of who he is, agony of his soul. That word depths. Literally, that's the word that's used in the Bible where in Genesis it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the depths. It's this idea of the bottomness, the, the very bottom that I can go. He's saying the anchor, the, the furthest inside of me is crying out to you, God. There's anguish. This is not surface level annoyance. It's not trivial being upset about something. This is someone who has taken the time to understand what he's experiencing is pouring out the fullness of who he is to God. And one of the things we first notice is that he's able to label his emotions, right? He's able to label with words what he's going through. Many of us are very unfamiliar with how to do this. We've got so much going on in our mind and our heart and so much is happening at the same time and oftentimes the most we can say is something like, it's just hard, it's just, it's tiring. Those are good words. But, But the people of God need to be a reflective people and part of our weeping needs to be that we take the time to reflect well. We take the time to ask, what's happening in here? Not, not, not just basic, but, but let's sit down, structure ourselves for a second and ask, what is happening and how do I describe this with words? See, we've talked about this often, but we are such a hurried culture. And when we bring hurry into our spiritual nature, into our spiritual lives, when we think we can race through a relationship with God and that somehow we're going to progress in this thing called Christianity and achieve some kind of spiritual maturity, we're not fooling anybody. Everyone knows it doesn't work that way with things of the Spirit. And yet we oftentimes try to do that. We race through this stuff, but God invites us to reflect, to put words to what we're feeling. And the second thing we see here is that our emotions are vitally important to God. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O God, anguish of soul. Sometimes I think when we think of God, we think of him as this very kind of stoic God. And when we go to him, we got to have everything put in order. You know, we got to have our, our button popped up all, or not pop, that'd be weird, but uh, buttons done all the way up, right? You got to have your things in order. You got to have the candle lit. You got you to come to him at the right time when it's just the right way and you've got some things sorted out and you're not thinking about a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, there's no construction going on across the street, <laughs> We make up any list of things of how we think we're supposed to approach God. But God just invites us in the fullness of the range of our emotions to come before him and to experience him. He actually invites all of our emotions. We don't need to be put together. If you look at this psalmist, this is a man who's totally undone before the Lord. He's just wrecked. And he's just saying, this this is real. This is my life. And the psalmist was a regular guy, just like us. It's not like he had some supernatural thing he was going through in life. The problems we go through are the same problems they were going through. Different form, different generation, sure, but same stuff. We all go through this. This is life. And here he is saying, man, pouring my anguish out to you, Lord. 
God invites us and encourages us to bring our full range of emotions to him. The Psalms literally is the songbook of the Bible. And, it, and it, it, what we see is the full range of emotion put on display. It, have you trained yourself to actually bring your emotions to God in a way that develops your spirituality? Anger, frustration, jealousy, rage, sadness, depression, desire, lust, revenge, hunger. All through the Psalms, God's people have trained themselves to bring these and to not feel that these are something that are separate from our spirituality, but actually are part of our whole person. And therefore, God's inviting all of us, just like we would share these things with our best friend or with our spouse, or we'd write them in our journal. God says, bring them to me because I can handle them. The big point here, this is, don't, don't miss this. The big point is not just that you can bring your emotions to God. It's that you must. You must. Until you learn to bring your emotions to God and actually put words to what you're experiencing in life, the hardships internally and externally, you're missing what worship looks like. We bring it all to him because he's able to handle it. But what I want you to see here is this turn the psalmist makes. We're still in this category of weeping, learning to weep well before God. And he doesn't just stop at the emotions. Something turns for him in verses 3 and 4. He says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity. Oh God, who, should, who would be able to stand? He, he looks down at the source of the pain in his life. And he, he looks at the hardship in his life. And he says, okay, it's hard. All this stuff is happening. And yet in the middle of it, a root cause of all the frustration and all the emotional toil I'm going through is sin in my life. That's the root of it. That's the cause of it. I'm the one that's too controlling, and I don't give control to you. I don't release it to you, and that's the cause. That's why there's so much pain. I'm the one that hasn't learned how to worship you well. I'm the one who hasn't gotten plugged into community well. I'm the one. This is all sin, and at the root of my emotion, everything else is happening in life. At the center of it all is my sin. Now, I want to take a side before I go any further on that. For some of us in this room, we have been the victim of tremendous sin. And, and I think sometimes what people who have been the victims of tremendous sin hear from the church is that you need to repent. You need to change. You need to be different. And I want to tell you just past, as a pastor to you, if you have been the victim of someone else's sin, whether it's been emotional, whether it's been physical, whether it's been sexual, whatever the sin has been where they have victimized you, you are not called to repent for their horrors. What you need to know is that there is a God who loves you and invites you to sit before him as he wraps his arms around you and says, I am your shepherd. I am the one that loves you. I can restore what has been broken. It's not too far gone. You don't need to repent for the evils of someone else. You repent for your sin, but not for someone else's. You need to sit here before God if that's you and know, okay, I don't need to repent for them. I am the victim here and I can find healing in God. For some of you in this room, I suspect that it's healing words. Because of all you've ever heard from the church is you need to repent for that sin. That can just devastate you. And yet, in the midst of that, oftentimes what we do is we then cast the blame on everybody else. I'm moving on past that statement here. I'm going back to everyone, most of us in this room. We cast the blame for what's going on in our life on everyone else and never actually look in time and reflect on what's happened in our own heart and how we've caused it. Here's how this happens. We, we go to our spouse. We go to our office. We go to our friends. We say, look, you've done this, 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 and this. 
I know I do this. I get it. That's who I am. I do that, right? I get it, right? That's me. Fine. But you did this. Clearly, that's the big deal here. That's the problem with everything. And the psalmist invites us to turn the camera on ourselves and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Remember when you just said, I know I do this? That's, <laughs> that's what I want you to deal with right now. That's it. That's sin. That's sin. It's sin that you thought that wasn't a big deal. And it's sin in and of itself. You need to double repent, right? What the psalmist invites us to do is to sit before God and say, okay, my sin is at the center of this. There's a great book that was written recently called Extreme Ownership by a Navy SEAL, team of Navy SEALs. This guy is just brilliant, right? He writes all about leadership. He's a secular writer, not writing from a Christian perspective or anything like that. He's just writing about how to be a good team leader and what they learned in the SEALs and how all these teams performed extraordinarily on the field. And he writes this about good leaders. He says, the leader must own everything in his or her world. There is no one else to blame. This is the whole point of the book. You take extreme ownership. If anything goes wrong on your team, it's the leader's fault, no one else's fault. No one else is to blame. The leader must acknowledge mistakes and admit failures, take ownership of them, and develop a plan to win. Something like that is what the psalmist is saying. I recognize that deep down inside, I am the cause of my sin. And before I cast the blame on anybody else, I need to deal with that. And I need to weep over it. You know, if, if you don't know how to weep before the Lord, it's uncomfortable at first. And, and frankly, it feels weird to get down and to actually repent of the sin that we've done. But over time, it becomes second nature. You find yourself lost in prayer just saying, God, I confess. Wow, do I confess to you these things. Become second nature. Jesus said this all the time. Remember Matthew chapter 7? Take the log out of your friend's eye. Why? He says this, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Have you learned how to weep well? Have you learned how to go before God, acknowledge your own sin, and get on your knees and just allow God to actually handle it? He's able to handle what you bring it to him, and you must, you must. This is the health of your spirituality that we're talking about. First one, we weep. What's the second one? Who's got it? Yes, waiting. Thank you, Brian, leading the charge there. Appreciate that. Waiting. We wait on the Lord. Psalm 130, verses 5 to 6. Let's read this. I wait for the Lord. No brainer. That's where you find it. You don't have to search for the word too hard. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. We just got done. Here's a guy who's just undone before the Lord, bringing everything to him. And then he hunkers down, he anchors himself, and he sets in for the long haul because he knows the God who he just poured out to is a faithful God who answers prayers and has made tremendous promises in his life and hears the prayers, will answer those prayers on his time and in his own way. That's how it works. That's how he's always done it. That's how he's done it in each of our lives, and that's how he will continue to do it. And so what he does is he anchors in. He says, I'm going to wait persistently. Now, there is a good way to wait, and there is a wrong way to wait. Some of us have never been trained on how to wait well on the Lord. Some of us are waiting for answers to prayers that are never going to come because God has never told us he's going to give us those answers. And we're waiting poorly, and we're confused about why we're not growing in our faith. And others of you are waiting faithfully and growing tremendously. I think we see three healthy ways to wait from here. Number one, we wait on a personal God. 
Number one, we wait on a personal God. You know, when you read in, if you have an ESV translation, I'm pretty sure this is the case. Every time you see the word Lord, so in verse uh, 5, I wait for the Lord, usually that is the, all uppercase is the Hebrew word Yahweh. The way they've chosen to translate it is all capital letters, Lord. Yahweh is the personal name of God. That is not a name, just a, a general name of God. That's a very personal name that was given to Moses. And we've shared this story before, but let's remember the story. Moses was a man who had been adopted as a young boy, but then cast out by his adopted family as well as cast out from his biological family. They had all said, we don't want you. And he fled the scene, and then God called him to do tremendous things. He said, Moses, i got a tremendous plan for your life. I'm going to do things through you that you would never even ask or imagine. I'm going to change the world through you. I'm going to change history through you. I'm sending you back to Egypt to rescue my people Israel from slavery out of there. Now, I want you to know that's the same, not the exact same, but the same voice of God that spoke to Moses speaks in a similar way to each of you. The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, God says, i got a tremendous plan for your life. I'm going to shake the world through you. i got plans for you you never dream of. I'm going to send you. That every single follower of Christ is sent out with the power and the name of God as their tools. He says, I'm going to send you the same thing God spoke to Moses. He speaks to you. Moses, in all his fear of that calling, the same fear most of us feel on a, de- on a daily basis when we think of our calling, right? He says, man, if I go over there, I I got all these doubts, God. Who will I say sent me? And God responds in that moment, Yahweh sent you. Yahweh means I am. It means I am. I am the God who just is, who always has been, who always will be. That God, that's the God that sent you. And Yahweh became the personal name of God. One way we wait well is we pray in our waiting. If, If If waiting on God to respond to prayers is not saturated in prayer to a personal God that you are getting to know, you're not waiting well. You're not. The the name Yahweh inspires and invokes prayer. It, It invokes relationship. That's what the name means. Yahweh, I am. I am. Come to me because I am. I'm here. I'm not gonna change. If you're not praying in your waiting, laying it constantly before God, I'm not sure if you're waiting well. Number two, we wait on the promises of God that are informed from the Bible. We wait specifically from the Bible. Look at me at, verse, uh, at the end of verse 5. He says, and I hope in his word. In his word, I hope. He's talking about this word, the spoken word of God. He's waiting on the promises of God. See, if we don't know what the promises of God are, we're going to be very confused when God shows up in a different way than we expected him to. See, waiting on the word means regularly opening up God's word and and, and looking back at these stories and saying, wow, look, all right, Judges 14, look at the story of how God related to Samson and what he did in Samson's life. Okay, I see how that could, I understand how God works now. I see how he responded to him. And since God is unchanging, he's going to respond to me in a similar way. I get it. We're opening up God's word. We're learning this nature of God and who he is, who he's spoken himself to be and the promises he's made and we're anchoring ourselves in the word of God. How do we do that? For me, one of the things I've been doing for a while now is memorizing a section of scripture. I've been going through Psalm 119. This week's verses for me are verses 43 through 45. It reads this way. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. My hope's in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place. 
for I have sought your precepts. That idea of walking in a wide place, I love that. Keep in mind, the psalmist, just in the previous stanza, he said, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. He's got princes plotting against him. He's got corruption and evil all around him, yet he says, I walk in a wide place. I'm not going to quickly fall off. My world's not falling apart. It's not all going to crumble any second. Why? Because the promises of God are good. When we anchor in the word of God, we're stuck on his precepts. And because he's immovable and sure, we've got an anchor to actually hold us. See, anchoring in God's word protects us from foolishly waiting for promises that God never said he'd give. You can go to some churches in the world today that are not teaching the Bible and that will tell you that God wants to bless you with health, wealth, and money. He wants to give you health, wealth, and just goodness and all these wonderful things. And so you can mistakenly be praying for promises from God and waiting for him to show up with an answer to a sickness or a, a certain amount of money. Now, don't get me wrong. God answers those prayers. Bring those to God. If you are sick or someone else as you know is sick, pray over them. Pray for healing power. And he may respond, but he might not. Pray if you need, if you are in a situation where you are short of money, you can, don't, don't hesitate to bring that to God. Lord, I believe that you are able to provide. But if he doesn't show up in the exact way that you expected, don't be surprised because those things are not your right. God is sovereign over all things. When we anchor ourselves in the promise, we avoid waiting on God foolishly for answers he never said he'd give. I love Martin Luther's words on this. Martin Luther, the great reformer, When talking about the word of God, he says this. So come up behind me. He says, after the word of God, my wife is the greatest treasure in my life. I just love that. (laughs) Now, one, I think for some of us, we read a quote like that and we go, really, Martin? You're going to talk about your wife that way? But this is the place that the word of God needs to take in our life. See, I can only love my wife so well as I'm overflowing God's love into her. I can only love my wife so well as God's word is is permeating the depths of my soul, transformingly forming agape love in me that by the spirit of God now overflows in love into someone else. If I'm not loving and prioritizing the word of God first above everything else in my life, then I'm robbing everyone else in my life of the true love they should be getting from me. If the word of God is not the priority in my life and I'm not clinging to those promises rather than clinging to the promises of this world, clinging to promises of our jobs, the promises of what we hope for in this life, if we're not clinging to the word of God, we're robbing the people we love most of the love they ought to be getting from us. The third thing is waiting is persistent. Waiting is persistent. Look, he says, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. He repeats that line twice because he's trying to make a point. When watchmen wait for the morning, it's like waiting for a you know, watching a pot of water boil. It takes forever. It never happens. The morning, it just, it just seems like it lasts forever. And then finally, you get that just like that little glimmer. Just the top edge of the sun peaks above the horizon. And you know, man, the answer's coming. You've waited and you've waited and you waited when you thought it was coming and then it didn't come and it was just waiting and waiting and then finally one day when you're least suspecting it because you've been anchored in the word of God, you look out and there's a sliver and you say, ooh, God, it, God heard and he's answering me now. That's how God works. But if you're not waiting patiently for it, you'll miss it when it comes up over the horizon. 
Some of us are so quick about our faith, we don't wait on God like a watchman waits for the morning. We wait on him like a NASCAR driver coming in for a pit stop. We come in a thousand miles an hour. Here we are, just drive in. We open our Bible, look at our, we read our quick thing real fast. Boom, knock it out. Okay, good. Say our prayer, God, I got so much to do today. Would you somehow just sustain me today? Amen. Let's go. Busy with my day. I got things to take care of. I got project deadlines. I got my kids. They need food. I got, my, I got a thousand things in my life I got to do. We wait on God in a split second, and we think spiritual maturity is going to come. We got to learn to wait with persistence. God's people always wait with persistence. We just finished the book of Galatians. Paul was an intern for 14 years. Remember that? He had the word of God bottled up inside of him, learning from God. Before he became an evangelist, he was just patiently waiting for that sending call from God. Abraham, how long did he wait for Isaac after the promise of Isaac was given? Was it 20 years, I think it was? 20 years. You can barely wait 20 seconds. This is what the people of God do. We weep over our sin. God, I've, I, I confess, I repent, I know this is my fault. I know I've brought in an improper sense of worship. I'm trusting in your promises, I'm anchoring it, and then we wait. We trust God's word, we wait with perseverance, we enter into prayer with God, and we wait. If you're having a hard time waiting on God, one of the first things we often do is we try to take the situation to our own hands and try to solve it through human means. Now sometimes, sometimes, that might be the exact thing God's calling you to in the sense of he might be providing people around you, human means to come answer your prayer. But in order to know what the response God is giving you is, you've got to be anchored in prayer, regularly looking at his word and getting to know the character of God. Otherwise, you won't know what's from God and what's not from God. That's why it's so critical to be pouring out into Christian community because sometimes the answers to prayers he gives happen across this room. You're over here struggling. Man, the world's crashing down around me. God answers something over there and gives a word to them that is to be spoken in your life. But that doesn't happen if you're not in an intimate community where you're getting to know each other and care for each other. You've got to be persistent. We weep. We wait. And then what's the third one? We worship. We worship. Look with me. Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Notice how his posture begins to change. It's communal now. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Now just for a second, look at Psalm 130. Look at that structure of that. You can see the structure right there. It's not that long. He begins wailing over his sin, and then he turns to waiting on God and his promises, and then he moves to worship of God he, he looks out over all the people of Israel. He says, don't forget the way that God is moving. He is active and at work in your life, and he is worthy of worship. What is worship? We come back to this over and over again because we always need to be reminded of this. What is worship? Worship is whatever you give your greatest attention to. Now, I've shared some of this before, and this is so important. Worship is whatever you give your greatest energy to, whatever you give your greatest passion to, whatever consumes your time and your thought. For some of us, it's our spouse, it's our job, it's our pursuit of what we're going for in this life. Everybody's worshiping something. I don't care what religion you are, if you're atheist, agnostic, Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever you are, we're all worshiping something. It's that thing in your life that takes the most amount of your energy, passion, and consumption of thought, mind, and heart. That's what you're worshiping. 
The reality is that there's only one thing that's actually able to handle your worship and actually make good on it. There's only one thing in your life that can handle real worship. Everything else is just a broken cistern and will fall apart if you anchor your worship on it. But God can sustain it. And God says we're called to worship God with our emotions, with our minds, and with our wills. It's all of us. We worship God with our emotions. That's why the psalmist over and over again says, rejoice, exult in the Lord, find joy in the Lord. It's our emotions that we pour out before him with our wills. That's why God says to worship God with your body, to come bow down before me, to kneel or to dance, even to sing. That is something we do with our wills. We actively make choices with our bodies And also with our minds. Jesus told them to worship God with all your heart, soul, and mind. We think rightly about our God. You know, it's very easy to come into a place like this on Sunday and think we participated in worship when in reality nothing like that happened. You you can come into a room like this. Go through church. you You can sing the songs we sing. You can hear a sermon that you just think is out of this world, right? Like, wow, that was good. But if you don't leave with a a ravishing sense of the beauty of God... If you don't leave with just this, man, wow, God is amazing. He's bigger than I knew. And your emotions aren't wrapped up in who God is. I'm not sure if you experience worship. And by the same token, you know, you can come in here and you can be totally moved by the service. You, you can sing the songs to your crying. You can hear a sermon that you just, you, you're weeping in your seat. It's touching all the right chords inside. And you leave, and if nothing changes, if your will hasn't been impacted, if you don't think about God in a new way or, or, or nothing about your life, if, if there's not some sin that's being stripped away from you, you might have had an emotional experience. But it might not have been worship. See, all of creation is pointing us towards worship. Everything. Everything that God's ever created. That's why there's so much design and beauty in the universe. It's it's designed to drive us to worship God. It's what you were made for. It's what we're going to do in heaven. We're going to be living lives of worship, constantly worshiping our God. It's going to be good. And everything in this creation is designed to to drive us towards worship. All of creation proclaims his handiwork. Every blade of grass. Think about that for a second. Every blade of grass. Wow. Look at the creation of God. Every drop of snow. Every molecule of oxygen. Every every smile upon every face. Every wave that's ever crashed upon the sea. Every underwater current that keeps the ocean cycling in its proper methods. Every rising of the sunset of the sunrise, every cycle of the earth around the sun, every star that shines throughout the Milky Way galaxy, every strand of DNA that's written like a book in your bloodstream, every ant that marches through every patch of dirt, every grain of sand that blows across every painted desert, every rock and every pebble that sits upon the highest peak and rests upon the lowest valleys, every fish that swims in the corner of the ocean that no human eye will ever see is designed to bring your worship to God. It's all proclaiming the handiwork of God and only when we sit and get to know God and see Him and pray and understand His Word can we see it that way. Otherwise we walk by the grass like it's no big deal. We walk outside like nothing's new, and yet God is drawing us into worship. 
And the, the ultimate of what draws us to worship is, is not just his creation, but that he entered into his creation. Jesus on the cross dying for you in your place. You see, this is the thing. If we read Psalm 130 without the cross, the story ends after verse 4. Oh Lord, who could stand with you? Who marks iniquity? No one. No one. If we're left to ourselves and Christ never came, we stand condemned in our sin before a righteous and holy God and he is justified fully to keep us separated from him from all eternity. And yet he didn't leave us there. He sent his son and the thing that should stir us on to so much worship is the reality that God loves you enough to give you life in the full here and now, to give you forgiveness for your sins where he shed his blood on the cross that you might be forgiven. He gives you new life and that new life will be experienced in full in heaven and we need a thousand sermons to tell us about the goodness and the hope of what is to come but we also need to be reminded that goodness and hope begins now. It begins now. And the longer we put off this worship, the longer we wait to form these habits, the longer we're robbing ourselves of the fullness of what God's invited us into. He's invited us to be those that worship well, that live the full life he's given us. Only knowing the gospel allows you to live that life. Jesus invites you into it. As I close this out here, I know that we're entering into this new year. I know you've got a thousand things on your mind, the things you want to accomplish, but I... I'm going to beg you. I'm going to beg you. Let this be a year that's marked by, by new transitions, new habits in your life. It's awkward at first. It feels weird to get on your knees and repent. But one day it will become second nature if you start that process. It feels weird. It feels clunky at first. And yet there is fruit to be had on the other side of forming that discipline. I want to beg you, make a commitment to yourself. I'm going to learn what this looks like, the secret that other people have learned throughout history. All of God's people who have gone the way before us have shown us how to do this. It starts by confessing your sin, by weeping over the reality that we're fallen from God, waiting on the promises of God, the reality that he will come through, and then worshiping with God's people together. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we proclaim these things to be true. Because your word says it. God, I pray for us that we would be a people who truly worship you well. Not just in word, not just in motion coming through, but with all of us. That we would bring our full human experience to you and know that you can handle it. And that you have given us life to be had in the full. And the full life is found when we are wrapped up in you. In nothing else. God, we, we ask for forgiveness where we have wrapped ourselves in other things in this world where we put too much emphasis and too much focus and frankly too much worship on things that can be taken, on things that are fleeting and passing and that can't give us life. Jesus, we pray that as we go from here, you would give us fullness of life. By the power of your Spirit, transform us. May we be a changed people. In Jesus' name, amen.